1 John 2.18 says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. For some people, the word Antichrist is like a dog whistle. Their ears immediately perk up, and they're thinking, now we're talking, this is going to be the kind of Bible study I like. Well, maybe, maybe not. When you hear the word Antichrist, what comes to mind? Uh, for, for many, it's an image of a wild-eyed, heartless, demon-possessed, megalomaniac seeking to establish a one-world government who's the son of Satan. And some of you are thinking, that sounds like my boss. Well, there are a few subjects that have generated more speculation and finger-pointing and outright hatred than the Antichrist. Some of the people that were thought to be the Antichrist over the years have included the Roman Emperor Nero. He was thought to be the Antichrist. The Pope of the Catholic Church has often been a popular choice as the Antichrist. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was believed at one time to be the Antichrist. Hitler was an obvious choice being thought of as the Antichrist. The leader of Russia has often been someone who has been branded the Antichrist. The President of the United States, no matter who it has been, has often been identified as the Antichrist. Almost every major leader in the world has been suggested as the Antichrist at some point by someone. You may be surprised to learn, though, that although this idea is found in other parts of the Bible, the actual term Antichrist is only found, only found in the letters of John, 1 John and 2 John, three times in 1 John and one time in 2 John. That's the only places in the Bible where this word Antichrist appears. What John says about the Antichrist may surprise you too because his focus is not on the things that people commonly associate with the Antichrist. 1 John 2.22, he says, Who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Then in 1 John 4.2, he says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Second John, verse 7, he says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. See, for John, it's, it's not primarily the conflict between political regimes and ideologies that result in an apocalyptic war at the end of the age that concerns him. Instead, it's the conflict over who Jesus is. The Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God, God in human flesh, who has brought salvation to humanity. See, this is an all-important question for each of us to come to grips with who is Jesus Christ. 
Is he God the Son who died to rescue us from sin and death? Is he the uniquely qualified and capable one who can reconcile us with God and give us eternal life? Or was he a mere man who was tragically misunderstood and unappreciated by the people of his day and put to death for being a public nuisance? A lot of what John talks about in in this passage today has to do with right and wrong belief. Our modern culture tells us that it doesn't really matter what we believe about spiritual things as long as it's helpful for us personally and it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, in truth, it does matter what we believe. It matters a whole lot. There's truth and there are lies. What we believe will determine our fate. So let's Flip over to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Up in verse 17, John said, The world and its desires pass away. They're temporary. They're not going to last. They're not going to be part of the eternal kingdom that Jesus is establishing. John now goes further in this next verse with that idea, and he says that we are actually in the last hour of the present world. With the way things have been going for the past few months, it's really not hard for us to believe that we are living in the last hour, is it? I mean, it seems like the end of the world type hits have just been coming and coming and coming. I mean, just about the time we think there's going to be a reprieve and we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel, something else comes up. Well, you might also be thinking, though, as we read these words of John, well, well, wait a minute. John wrote these words some 2,000 years ago, saying it was the last hour then would have been plausible. But after all these years have passed, how can it still be the last hour? John must have been mistaken. I mean, he must be goofed up on his timeline in some way. It's been a very long last hour, John. Well, we need to remember that God does not measure time the same way we do. We measure time in relationship to time. Since that is the realm that we exist in day to day, we live in time. But God measures time in relationship to eternity. He doesn't look at it inside of time. He's outside of time, and he sees it in that way. In mathematics, any finite number, no matter how large it is, when compared to infinity, it approaches zero. And in God's realm, it's similar with time. Any finite amount of time, no matter how long it is, when it's compared to eternity, it approaches zero. Zero, or to use the vernacular of John, it is the last hour. So, this last hour may seem long to you and me, but in view of eternity, it has been merely a blink of the eye. Simply put, the last hour is the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus came that first time, the final days of this present age began counting down, and it's been counting down ever since. You know, Peter, he makes a similar point in his book of Second Peter, verse 
3 of chapter 3, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Why has God drawn out this last hour? Why has he delayed the second coming of Jesus and the end of the present age? According to what Peter writes here, in hopes that people will repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to receive forgiveness and enter into this new life that Jesus Christ has made possible for us. John says that the Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists have come already. In fact, Antichrists are a feature of this last hour that we're living in. During this period of time, while we wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ, Antichrists and false teachers are going to be a thing. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. This verse can be confusing and misleading if you are not careful. We need to pay careful attention to the context of this passage in order to navigate our way through it and get to the intended meaning of the verse. This verse is one that has often been used out of context to teach things that John did not intend to teach with this verse. For example, John is not talking about people who were once part of our church fellowship and have since left to be part of another church. There are hundreds of good Christian Bible-believing, Jesus-loving churches in our area, and it's not uncommon or a sin for people to change churches for all kinds of reasons. John is not talking about a person who was thought to be a believer, who has fallen away, stopped attending church because of some moral failing. That's not the context of what John is writing about here either. Well, what is the context of this verse? What is he talking about? Well, first, we need to remember that John has been talking about people who have been introducing false teachings into the churches. In the immediate passage we are studying, John calls these false teachers antichrists. They have actually been teaching that Jesus is not the Christ. 
The people John is talking about are not simply people who have not yet come to believe Jesus to be the Christ. He's talking about people who have motive and intent associated with the things that they're teaching. Look at verse 26. It helps us see this more clearly. In verse 26, he says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So, the people John is talking about in verse 19 are people who he characterizes as antichrists, who deny that Jesus is the Christ of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, and they have intent in leading others astray with their erroneous teachings. If they had been true believers and part of the church, they would have remained with us, John says. They would have continued with. They would have clung to. They would have stayed true to the original beliefs and teachings of the Christian faith. The fact that these people have left the church fellowship, abandoned the teachings of the church, deny that Jesus is the Christ, and they're now trying to draw others to leave the church and join up with them, is all evidence that they were never really true believers. These people are wolves in sheep's clothing. They have been masquerading as believers, but their true colors have now come out. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. The false teachers, they were claiming to have a special anointing that gave them insights and understandings that others didn't have. John counters their claim saying that actually all true believers, followers of Jesus, Christians, have an anointing from the Holy One, God, enabling them to know the truth. And the anointing that we have is the Holy Spirit himself. In the Old Testament, we read of people being anointed with oil to dedicate them, to bless them, to set them apart for special tasks that God has called them to. A person was anointed to serve as a priest, for example. A person was anointed to serve as king, for example. Jesus, you might remember, he was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, The literal meaning of the word Christ is one who has been anointed or the anointed one. That's what the word Christ literally means. So Jesus is the anointed one. We, his followers, we're anointed with the same thing that Jesus was anointed with. We're anointed with the same Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. We are not anointed with a symbol of the Lord's power and blessing. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit himself. Tyndale said, you are not anointed with oil on your bodies, but with the Spirit of Christ in your souls. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit provides us everything we need, enabling us to know and to understand what the Lord has given us through Jesus Christ. One of the things that purveyors of erroneous teachings commonly do is try to make us feel like we're missing out on something really special that they have. And they suggest that they have the secret key that we are missing which will unlock these 
insights and understandings and experiences that they have. Beware of any so-called teacher, preacher, prophet, spiritual know-it-all claiming to have a special revelation, making them unique from the rest of us. Everything anyone says should be measured against the Word of God, the Bible, regardless of the credentials that they claim to have or giftedness or anointing or whatever. If what they are saying conflicts with Scripture, get away from them. Don't listen to them at all. Let's look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and his role in our life over in John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus said this to his disciples. I have much to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak on his own. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Notice that the Truth that the Holy Spirit teaches is the same truth that Jesus taught. He'll not speak on his own. The stuff that he teaches will not be some new and different stuff. It will be what Jesus has also been teaching. What he teaches, he will have received from Jesus. He will seek to glorify Jesus, magnifying him. Now, in contrast to that, these, whole, these false teachers, they've sought to minimize Jesus, even to basically delete Jesus, eliminate him, say he does not even really need it for a relationship with the spiritual. They've added new and different teachings about who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't. They have not sought to bring glory to Jesus. They have instead been trying to de-glorify Jesus every way imaginable. They are anti-Jesus rather than pro-Jesus. They are anti-Christ. Verse 22, John says, Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. John gives us a definition of sorts here of Antichrist. It is one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God, God come in human flesh. Then in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The Father and the Son go together. The person who denies that Jesus is the Christ can't have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus is the door through which we have to enter into a relationship with God, the Father. If we eliminate the door, we are not getting in. Only the Son can reveal the Father to us. Only the Son can reconcile us with the Father. Look at some of these verses. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus said, All things have been committed to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is 
himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. John 14, 6, Jesus said about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are all things that Jesus himself said about himself. It's not some wild-eyed preacher up here making this stuff up, trying to press Christianity as the only way. Jesus said he is the only way to have a relationship with God. Jesus said that. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 24. John writes, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. This is how we guard against being led astray by false teachers. Remain in what we have heard from the beginning, he says. That word remain in. Remain in, stick with, cling to, hold on to, abide in, live in. It means to stick to the historical orthodox Christianity that has been taught by the apostles and found in the Bible. I want to dispel a bit of misinformation that is sometimes thought about the Bible that we have in our own day. You may have heard, maybe you even believed that the content of the Bible that we have today is different from the Bible in the early days of the church, that it has been modified over the centuries. That is false. That's not true. The content of the Bible that you have in your hand right now has not been changed or modified at all from the Bible that the early Christians had in their day. In fact, the Bible is the most carefully and well-preserved ancient text in the world by a huge margin. There is not another ancient document in existence that you can have more confidence in that it has not changed over the centuries than the Bible. This is the same text that Christians have always been reading and trusting in. It's not been modified not been updated. It doesn't need to be updated. It is the eternal word of God. Verse 26 says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, Just as it has taught you, remain in him. Is John saying that Christians don't need anyone to teach them? That we can learn everything we need to know about Jesus Christ through some kind of personal supernatural revelation given to us by the Holy Spirit? No, he's not saying that. That's not what he's teaching. 
I mean, think about it. John is clearly teaching believers through his letter that we're reading right now that he wrote to us. So obviously, there is a need for teaching within the church. See, if the only teaching that you are receiving is what you think the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in the privacy of your own mind, then it's not going to be very long before you are way off in the weeds somewhere and lost. We need a regular intake of good teaching in order to grow and mature and to stay on course with correct belief and doctrine. And this is exactly why John wrote the letter of 1 John. What John is saying is that these believers that he's writing to don't have any need for this special knowledge that these false teachers are claiming to have and trying to give to them. These believers have already received the truth. They don't need whatever these other cats are selling. They need to remain in the things that they have heard from the beginning. Remember the passage from the Gospel of John in chapter 16 that we looked at a bit ago about the Holy Spirit's role in our life? The things the Holy Spirit teaches us are the same things that Jesus taught. He's not introducing new information. What he teaches us, he has received from Jesus. And what he teaches us brings glory to Jesus. He seeks to elevate Jesus, raise him up, help us to understand the full magnitude of the majesty and the importance of him in our life and in this world. Finally, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. People will have one of two reactions at the second coming of Jesus Christ. They will either rejoice or shrink back in terror. And this is what John is making reference to when he writes, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. For the follower of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus should be one of the most joyful, exciting, anticipated moments of our life. It's our wedding day when the Lamb of God comes to get us to be with him forever. Well, how can we be confident and unashamed when he appears? John tells us right here, by continuing in him, This is that same word that we have seen John use over and over throughout this letter. And in the Gospel of John, the word translated continue. It's that same word that means to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, to stick with Christ, to be unmoved in our commitment and devotion to Christ, to live in Christ. I want to go back and read that familiar passage from the Gospel of John where Jesus teaches about our need to remain, to continue, to abide, to live in him. We looked at this last time too, actually. John 15, verse 4, Jesus said, remain in me. That's that word. Remain, continue, abide, cling to, live in. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That word remains big, isn't it? I mean, it shows up again and again here. That idea of continuing, of clinging, of hanging on. Jesus is our life source. We need to remain in him. We need to continue in him. We must abide in him. We must live in him. We must stay connected to him. I said this last time, and I'm going to say it again, and it may seem too simple in a way, but reading our Bible and spending time in prayer are two of the most important things that we can do to stay connected with Jesus. Build those things into your daily life. Reading your Bible and spending time in prayer, that's how we have fellowship with Jesus. Continue in him. Stay connected with him. Lastly, this morning, if you've not come to faith in Jesus as the Christ yet, I encourage you to do that. We, we read the words of Jesus here today when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to have a relationship with God. He died as a sacrifice for your sins to remove the barrier which separates you from God, to take away your guilt before God. And he came back to life on the third day to give you and me eternal life. Acknowledge your sin to God. Ask him to forgive you. Ask Jesus to come into your life and begin following him. He wants to give you his new life. We're living in the last hour. We're living in the last hour. The second coming of Jesus Christ is on the way. We don't know how far away it is, but we know that he's surely coming. We want to be confident and unashamed before his coming. And the way we do that is by continuing in him all our days. Come to the Lord. Open your life to him. And those of us who have already received Christ as our Savior, remain in him. Continue in him. Stay connected to him. And you can look forward to his coming with joy and excitement. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your challenge today from your word that you've spoken to us through John. Lord, we want to remain in you. We want to be connected with you deeply. We thank you for this anointing that you've given us. You, Holy Spirit, you're the one that we've been anointed with. It's amazing that we have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is upon us and in us to knit our hearts together with you, Lord. What an amazing thing. I pray that you would just touch every one of your children today with just a renewed excitement and joy about the awesomeness that we are in relationship with you, God, through Jesus. Touch your people today with a special blessing of joy and peace, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.